0: Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the podcast where I take a deep dive into the stories behind the most interesting abandoned and defunct theme parks and amusements in the world. I'm your host, Ashley. This week, we're going to refocus ourselves from the external chaos. Let's set aside a space where we can go back in time, 113 years ago, and maybe even a bit before that. This is a story about a survivor— Can we call an inanimate object plucky? Maybe. Today, the history of Philadelphia Toboggan Company's carousel number 15. When last I focused heavily on carousels, it was October of last year, and I was telling you about the amazing Denzel Louvre carousel down at Seaside Heights in Florida. Well, that was a different time. It's now March, we're all inside, and recent updates are that that Denzel Loof carousel has been disassembled for storage and later refurbishment. Thinking about this carousel turned my mind to other carousels out there, because we don't talk about carousels often enough on the abandoned carousel. So I went digging, and I found the subject of today's episode— It's Philadelphia Toboggan Company, or PTC, number 15. To explain, we must start at the beginning. And to start at the beginning, we must begin. It starts with a guy, as always. Two guys, actually. Henry Auckey and his buddy, Chester Albright. In 1904, the two joined up and started a company. That's what you did back in the day. You started a company. You didn't make a podcast. These two guys, they wanted to, quote, build finer and better carousels and coasters, end quote. And in the process of achieving their goal, they did something very smart, which was to purchase inventory from a company that already existed making carousels. And this company was the E. Joy Morris Company. So to begin, we've really got to go back even further. Who is E. Joy Morris? E. Joy Morris was a small carousel manufacturer right around the turn of the century. He's really fairly lesser known, even in carousel circles. If you recall from the last carousel episode, there are three major styles of carousel carving. We have Coney Island style, Country Fair style, and Philadelphia style. It's the latter that we're going to talk about today, which is possibly unsurprising, given the name Philadelphia Toboggan Company. So, E.J. Morris, or e. Joy Morris, Jr., was a Philly man born in 1860. Interesting tidbit, his father was, of course, E.J. Morris Sr., um, and he, the senior, was the U.S. minister to Turkey under Abraham Lincoln. E. Joy Morris, of course, had family money, and with that family money, Morris was able to get in on the nascent amusement park trade. He patented a roller coaster-related invention in the late 1890s, and he established his own company to build figure-eight toboggans, what we now call roller coasters, carousels, and water shoots. Morris was a fun guy. He loved animals, children, and he wanted to make them happy. The famed Gustave Denzel was Morris's direct competition, and Morris aimed to outdo him by embellishing and adding lots of small, incredible, whimsical details perhaps also in a nod to his own playful nature, love of children, love of fun. Morris also did something else that was unique at the time, and this was keeping an inventory on hand. Prior to this, carousels were really built on demand at once as a buyer wanted them. But Morris's firm, they built many carousels at the same time, perhaps as a way to try and get a leg up on Dencell by being able to deliver carousels to customers faster once they actually purchased them. So from about the the late 1890s all the way through about 1903, Morris delivered all kinds of amusement park rides. He is said to have built and sold at least 20 carousels or coasters. But in 1903, his business plans changed, and for the sum of about $30,000, E.J. Morris sold over 200 completed carousel figures to those two guys I mentioned to you before, Henry Aukey and his buddy, Chester Albright, allowing them to build four carousels right off the bat and jumpstart their business, recouping their investment almost immediately. Why this sudden change in business plans? Why did E.J. Morris suddenly change his mind? Well, it appears to have been health-related. It's said that he was in the hospital shortly before he sold the manufacturing business. And though he lived another 20-some-odd years after this point, it does seem that his health was always in decline from this point on. But he wasn't totally out of the business. Though he divested himself from the manufacturing side of the amusement park business, he still remained active in the business side of the amusement park rides that he owned and operated well through about 1920. So Morris then was a huge inspiration and jumping off point for the newly formed Philadelphia Toboggan Company. As I said earlier, they quickly established themselves as a company after their inception in 1904 and built four carousels in short order with their completely new acquired E.J. Morris stock. And interestingly, I saw some notes saying that this is kind of why E.J. Morris isn't as well known these days as some of the other carousel carvers and carousel companies, because his work is often mistaken for... Um, PTC work, which makes sense because they're so closely related due to purchasing up the stock. Neither Alki nor Albright were carvers, which is unusual for carousel companies at the time because most other carousel companies at the time were headed by a person who was also the head carver. So the house style, because of this, the house style of the Philadelphia Toboggan Company carousels really varies quite a bit based on who was the head carver at the time. I really love this quote that I found from a 1904 Topeka State Journal article about Vinewood Park, which was one of the first PTC locations in the world. Quote, The word carousel is probably a new one in the West. The machine, which bears the name as its quote-unquote official title, is a revolving circular platform about 80 feet in diameter upon which is built a regular modern menagerie. All of the animals are fitted with saddles, and one can get a ride on anything from an elephant to a jackrabbit. The scheme is a new one, and has only been out of the factory for a few years. A number of the eastern parks have put in carousels, and they are proving very popular. End quote. Now, as I mentioned, Vinewood Park was one of the first Philadelphia Toboggan Company locations. This was really an interesting fact that I found the first ten... Carousels and roller coasters from the Philadelphia Toboggan Company were shipped to the same parks. So PTC Coaster and PTC Carousel number 1 both went to the same parks. PTC Coaster and Carousel number 2 both went to the same park, etc., all the way up through number 10. So the park ordered both at once, which I thought was really interesting and it's kind of a fun way to track the first 10 coasters and carousels. But the carousel we're interested in wasn't built until 1907 after the company had been active for three years. We're interested in PTC, Philadelphia Toboggan Company, carousel number 15. Now the PTC carousels are pretty unique in that each one of them was pretty well numbered. So they have a, carousels have a big, massive central pole and, you know, back in those days they were built, that was like one giant tree trunk. Um, and so each of the poles got a number at the PTC factories, and so this was the way that the company could track them. Um, there is some confusion in the research, it appears, uh, because over time, some carousels got new numbers or changed numbers as they went back and forth to the factory for refurbishment. However, overall, it does appear that the company kept really, really good records of the different carousels, which is interesting, and I uh, appreciate that very much. And a lot of the information about the various carousels and the company in general comes from this really good article um, that I will link in the show notes. It's all about the history of the Philadelphia Toboggan Company and most of their carousels. So, PTC number 15. It was built in 1907. It was a lot of firsts for the Philadelphia Toboggan Company. It was PTC's first four-row machine. It was PTC's first all-horse carousel, so no other animals, no menagerie in carousel parlance. And all of the horses on this carousel jumped. Traditionally, you know, at the time, especially, um, the outer row was the most beautiful horses and the most beautiful animals, but they were all stationary. They were all called standers. And, of course, the people responsible. We have Master Carver Leo Zoller, who was the head carver at PTC from 1906 to 1910, and he's said to have been responsible for many of the horses. And Carver Daniel Muller, who often worked at competitor Denzel's shop. So PTC-15 was gorgeous. It features large and highly animated figures with exquisitely carved details throughout the saddles and blankets and manes. They're just beautiful. From the National Register of Historic Places entry on this carousel, the horses are, quote, among the most realistically carved pieces ever done anywhere, end quote. That's a pretty strong statement. In addition to horses, the carousel also featured two large rare, well-carved lover's chariots, and hand-painted rounding boards depicting animals frolicking in a mythical landscape. Now, if you're not sure what a rounding board is, which I wasn't when I started researching, a rounding board is the painted boards decorating the tops of the carousels. They hide the machinery, and they attract the guests with both paintings and lights. Since they go around, you can see where they got the name rounding boards. So, PTC-15 was built in 1907. You've already said that. I can hear you saying that. Yes, I've already said that, but that was 113 years ago. How many places do you think the PTC went before it got to its eventual resting place? Is it still around? Let's find out. PTC number 15 was originally delivered to Fort George Amusement Park in New York. This was a small amusement park located in New York City along the Harlem River around West 190th Street. This location is the northernmost tip of Manhattan, what is now Highbridge Park and George Washington Educational Campus. Apparently, this was where George Washington fought the British during the Revolutionary War 250 years ago. At the time of its construction, of course, this park was a trolley park at the end of the 3rd Avenue trolley line. Fort George was known as Harlem's Coney Island, and it did its best to rival its Brooklyn amusement counterpart. This was a classic turn-of-the-century amusement park resort, full of dance halls, roller rinks, fortune tellers, gambling, beer halls, restaurants, hotels, and of course, the latest in amusements, Ferris wheels, roller coasters, and carousels. Ferris wheels, roller coasters, and carousels were the highlights. It was really less of an amusement park as we might think of it today and more of an amusement district. There were lots of different owners and operators and many different smaller parks within the area. Now, funny enough, PTC 15 was actually not the first carousel at Fort George. In fact, 1905's PTC number 8 was the first carousel there at Paradise Park within Fort George. And although the Roller Coaster Database, which is a very good resource if you've never been there, lists the Fort George Roller Coaster as unknown, the 2010 Carousel News and Trader article that I've been referencing about the history of the Philadelphia Toboggan Company confirms that the first 10 Philadelphia Toboggan Company carousels and coasters operated at the same parks. So, since PTC Carousel Number no. 8 went to Paradise Park at Fort George, it's very, very reasonable then to assume that coaster number eight would have gone here too. And this was a classic figure eight style coaster, similar to the currently existing Leap the Dips coaster, which is the oldest known coaster that's still in operation today. So Paradise Park at Fort George was an amusement park. It was operated by two brothers, Joseph and Nicholas Shank who saw the potential in the area and wanted to develop it further with this separate, extra-admission theme park. Well, this wasn't a theme park as we think of it now. It's an amusement park. There was not a theme. And indeed, the Shank brothers definitely made the park a huge success for the time. Estimates in contemporaneous news articles state 50,000 people in one evening in June of 1906. The park was located on a hillside, and I saw an anecdote in one of these articles that in the earliest years, some guests had to climb unsafe ladders up the hillsides before more permanent stairs were added. Now, different places do describe the location for our friend PTC number 15 differently. They say it's Wendell's Park or Fort Wendell and so on. This was actually a small resort hotel that was owned by a guy named Captain Lewis Wendell. And it was famed for its rooftop panorama views across the river. And this is where PTC number 15 was said to have lived, a few years after its sibling began operation. PTC number 15 was operated by Henry and Frank Kolb. A contemporary photo from the Museum of the City of New York shows Fort Wendell located just across the street from the large Paradise Park entrance, which may be responsible for some of the confusion in contemporaneous reporting on the place. A large faux castle turret facade stands atop the hotel roof, and it hoists this big sign labeled Wendell. It all must have been very glamorous at the time, especially on a hot summer night. Feel the breeze off the river, cutting some of the summer heat. Have a drink. Go dancing or roller skating. Buy an ice cream or a beer. And ride an amusement ride. A coaster, a Ferris wheel, a chair swing, a carousel. Let the wind blow through your hair. However, by 1910, public opinion of the locals was souring towards the parks and the whole district. Newspaper reports had headlines like, quote, police will have their hands full there, end quote. And other references talking about Fort George's history describe, quote, "...public drunkenness, noise, crime, and racial tensions." End quote. Neighbors began pressuring the various local authorities and committees to shut down the amusement district. They were tired of it. The next year saw an arson attempt, 1911, perhaps related to the neighborhood sentiment, but who's to say? The district reopened in 1912 after repairing the damages. Unfortunately, then came 1913. In June of 1913, another arsonist started a fire. Damages were reported at over $100,000 in 1913 dollars, with the entirety of the Paradise Park section completely destroyed by fire. This time, Fort George Amusement Park couldn't recover. The entirety of the Paradise Park section was said to have been completely destroyed by fire. And this time, Fort George Amusement Park couldn't recover, though local political groups ultimately took over the property and incorporated it at the time into the public Highland Park. Now, luckily, our hero, PTC number 15, was located at Fort Wendell, across Amsterdam Avenue from Paradise Park. Though the fire was said to have jumped across the street where it destroyed a, quote, four-story frame building, end quote, it did not apparently destroy PTC number 15. With the destruction of Paradise Park and the generally unfavorable neighborhood sentiment, though, any remaining amusements did likely move out away from this area over the next few years. Oh, and do you remember Joseph Shank, the guy who owned the Paradise Park? Well... He did a lot of fun things over his life. He ultimately moved to California, became president of a little company you might know called United Artists, created the company 20th Century Pictures, which of course became 20th Century Fox, and then was said to have played a key role in launching Marilyn Monroe's career. Home number two for our carousel is a bit of a question mark in that it's uncertain when exactly PTC number 15 moved to Summit Beach or when it left. So Summit Beach Amusement Park was located in Akron, Ohio. It went by the names Akron's Fairyland of Pleasure and Akron's Million Dollar Playground. Local businessmen conceived of the idea in 1914 and had incorporated an amusement company by 1916. They took applications from independent concessionaires to fill the park. There was a huge coaster named the Dixie Flyer. There was a whip and a Ferris wheel and a motordrome for racing. And, of course, there was a carousel. Now, here is the point of contention because the recent 2017 retrospective newspaper article about Summit Beach Amusement Park claims that the carousel at the park was a Denzel menagerie from 1917 with a Wurlitzer band organ. Indeed, another article, an Akron Beacon Journal article from 2010, shows many pictures of this carousel, and it's definitely a menagerie. There are black-and-white photos showing children gleefully purchased atop lions and pigs, neither of which are on the equine-only PTC number 15. However, despite this, the fairly official and well-referenced history of Philadelphia Toboggan Company from Carousel News and Trader in 2010, the article that I've been referencing, states that PTC-15 did go to Summit Beach Amusement Park. So here we have these two conflicting sort of ideas. One possibility is that PTC-15 went not to Summit Beach itself, but to the adjacent Lakeside Park, which was later absorbed by Summit Beach as it grew. Now, Lakeside Park was another park that began as a trolley park and picnic grounds way back in 1886. It was primarily known for something it called Casino Theater. One image, which I've only been able to find in a Google Books preview of a vintage Ohio postcards book, does show this carousel. It's located not too far from some canoe rentals, fairly close to the water. Um, next to a kind of interesting-looking open-air building. The carousel is reasonably visible with at least one horse in the outer row, but unfortunately the scan or the photo, whichever one, is not clear enough to really determine whether this was a four-row all-horse carousel. However, the provenance on PTC number 15 at Summit Beach is really not clear at all, so let's not dwell on it. We're all tired people. It's March of 2020. Let's call it a mystery and come back another time. Ultimately, of course, for Summit Beach, they were quite a successful park. As I said, they absorbed Lakeside Park, and they operated for another 40 years before shutting down in 1958. This park was primarily notable outside of the local amusement scene for the 1918 coaster derailment that killed several people. So, where did the carousel go from here? From here, Philadelphia Toboggan Company Carousel No. 15 moved up to a place that I'm very familiar with. It moved to Wisconsin for a while, heading in 1924 to the newly opened permanent amusement park at the State Fair in Milwaukee. Land of some of my favorite food groups, beer and cheese. To talk about the Wisconsin State Fair, we've got to go back, way back. The first fair was held in 1851. That year, the fair held between 13,000 to 18,000 guests, and it was the largest gathering in Wisconsin to that point. Abraham Lincoln delivered the annual oration at the 8th annual fair in 1859. And for many of the early years, the fair rotated through Wisconsin's bigger cities, Madison, Milwaukee, Janesville, and Fond du Lac. In 1892, the fair's 40th year, a permanent home was chosen. This was West Alice, a Milwaukee suburb. Apparently, this was actually a controversial choice, as many at the time were campaigning instead for a home in Madison, where Camp Randall Stadium is today, home of the Wisconsin Badgers, right on the university campus, right in the middle of the crowded downtown isthmus. By contrast, West Alice was out in the middle of nowhere at the time, but close enough to Milwaukee that people could still get to it. It's interesting to think how that one simple choice could have dramatically changed an entire city's downtown. I cannot imagine what Madison would be like if, instead of a stadium, there was a huge state fairground. Now, for the football fans who listen to my podcast, here is an interesting anecdote for you Apparently, for several decades, between 1934 and 1951, the Green Bay Packers, normally of Green Bay, played several of their regular season games at State Fair Park, including the 1939 NFL championship. 1924 saw the introduction of the signature Wisconsin State Fair food, the cream puff, but it was predated by a few years by the midway In 1922, the old State Fair Midway and Philadelphia Toboggan Company's Number 15. The Midway was, quote-unquote, Disneyland before Disneyland, according to Jerry Zimmerman, the State Fair historian, in a Milwaukee Journal Sentinel article from 2007. This new Midway was a spot for permanent rides operating under the care of a guy named Charles Rose, and it was supplemented by annual traveling Midway shows. Rides were open from Memorial Day to Labor Day, and by some accounts, this area was collectively called Fun City. Quote, It had a great roller coaster that ran from the front of where the Expo Hall is now down to Greenfield Avenue. There was a Ferris wheel, the bug, the hammer, the whip, the octopus, the electric scooter, and the old mill that was a tunnel of love, and a great penny arcade, end quote, said Zimmerman. Now, the carousel, Old Philadelphia Toboggan Company Number 15, was a fair staple for decades at State Fair Park in Wisconsin. I'll link to a couple of historical photos in the show notes. Apparently, Zimmerman, the guy who's the park historian, used to pretend he was the lone ranger when he rode that carousel as a kid at the fair each year. And this is an image of great delight and joy to me. As these things always go, the old State Fair Midway did not last. The fair saw a downfall in attendance after World War II, and it was nixed. The fair, of course, is still a huge staple there in West Alice today, but the old permanent midway closed at State Fair Park after the 1960 season. Following the closure of the permanent midway at State Fair Park, rides were sold to new homes. Our friend, Carousel Number no. 15, didn't go very far at all. Only about 15 miles southwest in today what is another outer suburb of Milwaukee, a town called Mosquito. No, not Mosquito, Mosquito. At the time, the carousel's new home was called Mosquito Beach Amusement Park or Mosquito Beach Resort. Now, this place, Mosquito Beach Amusement Park, had been in operation almost as long as the Wisconsin State Fair itself, since 1861. Now, of course, not much information is available about those early years, but regular listeners could probably make a safe guess that it started out as a picnic grounds type of park. It was opened by a Civil War veteran, a guy named John C. Schuett, in 1861, a man called the King of Muskego in 1880s politics. Back then, it was called Muskego Lake House and Beach Resort, where visitors could partake in, quote, picnicking, fishing, boating, swimming, and dancing end quote. And here's another interesting tidbit for you. The Mosquito Center Cemetery was established on that property in 1881, bordered on three sides by the park. This little pioneer cemetery weathered poorly. Stones were very worn and indecipherable, described in an article as, quote, a nuisance to the community, end quote. Now, validity of that opinion is up to the individual, but it does seem that the small cemetery had lost most of its interest from the general public. It wasn't until 1955, though, that all of the bodies in the cemetery were exhumed and moved to a different cemetery said to be Prairie Hill Cemetery in Waukesha. Now, Schuett owned the park for over 60 years. It wasn't until 1928 that he sold it to its second owner, a guy named William Bosehart. The details are a little bit vague, as always, but Bo's definitely added to the amusement park side of things, and he's credited with changing the name to Muskego Beach Amusement Park. And while Bo's Hart was the actual owner, a familiar name did the managing. A guy named Charles Rose, who, if you were paying attention, was the same guy from the State Fair Midway. By 1929, under Charles Rose's direction, a classic wooden John A. Miller coaster called Cyclone had been installed. There were all kinds of our favorite early and mid-century theme park rides, like The Whip. But why Muskego? Following William Bozhart's death in 1943, in 1944, in the middle of the war, Charlie Rose bought Muskego Beach Amusement Park from its then-owner, the recently widowed Mrs. William Bozhart. Her birth name, Nellie Lou Krebs. The park had been shut down for the war, but Rose reopened it and renovated it afterwards. For the better part of two decades, then, Charles Rose owned both the Midway at State Fair Park as well as Muskego Beach Amusement Park. When the Midway shut down at State Fair Park, it was really a simple decision that most of the rides would be acquired by Muskego Beach Amusement Park, which he also owned. So, the older and smaller rides at this regional park were replaced with bigger, nicer rides worthy of a state fair. And Muskego is really not that far away from downtown Milwaukee. It was just a short electric rail ride away. Under Rose's ownership, the park expanded and developed further. There was a ballroom for dancing operated under private ownership called the Starlight Ballroom. This was only open on weekends, and it seemed to have an air of mystery for younger daytime park visitors. During the weekend days, the ballroom was used as a roller skating rink. During the night, there were weekly dances and regular bands. Big names like the Everly Brothers performed, all the way down to smaller local bands. And other items around the park were upgraded as well. There was even a larger beach for bathing, new rides like the roller plane and massive increases to physical structures around the park like concession stands and other outbuildings. At the time, there was even a man named George who was known for giving boat rides on the lake, in a fancy boat. So, that 1929 Cyclone coaster ultimately closed in the 1950s. I did see one news report of a death on that ride due to a rider standing up while the coaster was in motion and falling off. However, it seems that the reason that the cyclone shut down was actually storm damage. Indeed, a blurb from a 2015 issue of Amusement Today notes that the cyclone was damaged twice in the same year in 1950 by wind, with some saying, quote, it fell over like a set of playing cards, end quote. Now, it's said that most of the broken ride was removed by the beginning of the 1951 season, Rose was savvy, though, and the part that remained structurally sound, about 700 feet of the cyclone's eastern turnaround, was actually retained, and he incorporated it into the replacement coaster, this newly built coaster called Tailspin, which opened in 1955. Rose himself designed the Tailspin, built to the tune of about $75,000, Tailspin actually had a rough start. Um, another huge windstorm knocked over 250 feet of the Tailspin tracks, crushing the New Whip and Caterpillar rides in the process, two weeks before the park was set to open and debut the coaster. Damages were estimated at around $125,000, but all of the rides and buildings saved for the coaster were able to open on time two weeks later. When Tailspin finally did open, it was worth the wait. This coaster is the park's most famous and memorable. Remembrances online indicate this was a very, very good coaster, said to be one of the fastest and steepest for its kind. The drop, 75 feet high. In or around 1968, the park was sold to a man named Willard Masterson, who changed the name from Mosquito Beach Amusement Park to Dandelion Park. Dandelion Park continued to be a popular place with local school groups, employer celebrations from both small businesses and giant Milwaukee area manufacturers alike, reunions, and so forth. And around the same time, we had another addition to the park. Choo-choo, it's time for the abandoned train! Yes, Dandelion Park rode the wave of all the other theme parks in the mid-1960s, and it got itself a miniature steam train. Not only a generic train, though, nope, we know this one. Dandelion Park purchased a Chance C.P. Huntington miniature train direct from the factory in Wichita. This one was serial number 61. It ran for the remaining years of the park's operation there at Dandelion Park, right on the shores of the small Muskego Lake. Now, unfortunately, trouble started brewing in the early 1970s. A young boy fell from the Ferris wheel and died, which may have led to rumors about the park's safety. Additionally, rumors about a new massive park being built only an hour away in Gurney, Illinois, were starting to brew. You see, Marriott, the hotel chain, wanted to branch out in the tourism industry. They had three different regions that they had their eyes on, Chicago-Milwaukee, San Francisco, and Baltimore. Now, the Baltimore Park was supposed to be the flagship park, but it faced a series of bureaucratic and local opposition hurdles, and ultimately that one was canceled. But in 1976, Great America opened. Now, the park that I'm referring to in specific in Illinois is now known as Six Flags Great America, but... With only two months' separation, Marriott at the time opened Marriott's Great America in California and Marriott's Great America in Gurney, Illinois. Both of these parks were immediate successes, both due to the timing, coinciding with the 1976 Bicentennial, and due to the use of the licensed Looney Tunes character theming that they had the license for. And Dandelion Park, Muskego Beach Amusement Park that we've been talking about, it was only an hour away and it really felt the pinch. Milwaukee and Chicago residents, they started going to Great America over Dandelion Park. So why did Dandelion Park and Muskego Beach Amusement Park close? It was that inevitable economic cycle. Lowered crowds, less money, maintenance falters, crowds stay away, and eventually it just became unprofitable to keep operating Dandelion Park. So, after only a couple years, Dandelion Park closed in 1978. Now, the park did stay standing but not operating for several years until 1983. Ultimately, the land was sold in order to be turned into condominiums, and the park was actually burned down in order to serve as practice for the local fire department. Gone up in flames, all but the memories that's not entirely true, of course. Not everything burned down. The sign from the Tailspin Coaster was recovered, restored, and today is owned and displayed by the Muskego Historical Society. And, of course, our friend, the C.P. Huntington, did not get burned either. It was sold to the Tulsa Zoo in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it still operates today, along with C.P. Huntington's number 90 and number 358. At one point around 2010, a proposal went around to potentially rebuild a beach park at the lake, Uh, but I'm not actually sure if that went forward or not. And, as I said earlier, the land where the park used to be became condos. So it goes. Now, you might be saying to yourself, where did the carousel go? Don't worry, it didn't get burned up either. We've still got some time left in the podcast. There's more to talk about. That sucker is already 70 years old by this point in our story, and it's already survived multiple theme parks and at least one fire. The little planned fire at the amusement park? That's not going to stop it. No, our friend PTC Carousel Number 15 did survive. It was purchased prior to the fire by a private group in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Yes, the same one as all the jeans. At the time, the trend was for carousels to be broken up, selling the desirable horses at higher individual costs to private collectors. The Carousel of Oshkosh Incorporated Group was formed to prevent Carousel Number no. 15 from being served the same fate. The goal was for the carousel to become part of a new park in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, home of a very good chocolate shop, by the way, if you're ever in town, called Oaks Candy. This was to be a new theme park. It was to be located near the Oshkosh Airport and was supposed to open in 1980. Quote, scheduled to open in May 1980, the park will be themed to the turn of the century and will include other amusement rides and attractions typical of that era. End quote. Sounds a little bit like Gaslight Village. But, unfortunately, it never happened. It's probably no surprise, because Oshkosh is a small town, it's not really close to any of the big, big towns in Wisconsin, and, of course, startup costs for a theme park are very large. So, Carol and Dwayne Perrin of the International Carousel Museum of Art bought the carousel in 1984 from that defunct Carousel Oshkosh Park company to the tune of about $150,000. $150,000 and they began restoring the carousel. Almost 80 years old at this point, and the big carousel certainly wanted to have a day at the spa by then, I'm sure. Now, the parents lived on the west coast, so the carousel got to take its biggest trip yet by this point, all the way to Oregon. Between 1984 and 1986, they restored the carousel fully, back to perfect working condition. 1986 saw the carousel being sent out of the country for the first and only time, up to Vancouver, British Columbia, for the Expo 86. Interestingly, this move resulted in the carousel being removed from the National Register of Historic Places because the move was done without consulting people at the register first. Now, I did have to Google this one, but Expo 86 was a world's fair. It was held in fall of 1986 in Vancouver. Now, of course, you're probably familiar with the general concept of World's Fair, but in case you've forgotten, they are places for nations to showcase their achievements for one another, and they may or may not be themed. Now, these World's Fairs are actually still a thing, if you didn't realize, which I didn't. Um, The 2020 Expo may or may not be held in Dubai, UAE in October of this year. But the very first Ferris wheel, <coughs> these, these World's Fairs have a history of being places of great innovation because countries are competing to show off for one another. So the very first Ferris wheel, in fact, was invented for the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago as a way to rival the previous stunner, the 1889 Eiffel Tower. Anyhow, back to Expo 86, the theme for this one was transportation and communication, world in motion, world in touch, so you can see how a carousel fit in quite nicely. In a quote from the New York Times write-up of the Expo, quote, its scientific theme should not dissuade vacationers because there is something for everyone, from rival United States and Soviet space stations to a painstakingly restored 1907 carousel with hand-carved and painted wooden horses, end quote. Again, another sidebar, um, another really interesting attraction from this expo was something called McBarge, which was a floating McDonald's. It's the subject of a really great mini-documentary on YouTube by Bright Sun Films, which I'll link in the show notes. Now, the carousel lived at the expo then for several months in Vancouver, B.C., and was quite a popular attraction, especially for young guests. After the expo, Carousel 15 spent the next three years traveling on various exhibits up and down the West Coast. Now, while this carousel was not technically a portable model per se, it was clearly able to be assembled and disassembled without much fuss. At this point, as Robin Sparkles might say, let's go to the mall. Today. Well, at least virtually. Following the carousel's travels with Perrin's International Carousel Museum of Art, Carousel number 15 was installed at a California mall. The Puente Hills Mall is located in the city of Industry, California, a made-up-seeming town name that is in fact real and actually a Los Angeles suburb. The mall opened in 1974, and it is still operational today. My perusal of Wikipedia tells me it was most notable for being the filming location for the parking lot scenes in Back to the Future, also known as Twin Pines Mall. Puente Hills was also home to the first-ever Foot Locker store. One of my newest favorite YouTube channels is called Retail Archaeology, videos of malls from active to dead malls. Malls are on the verge of closure. Eric from Retail Archaeology did a 2018 video on Puente Hills, and it was nice to watch that last night while I was doing podcast research on this topic. So in 1991, our friend Carousel Number no. 15 moved to the Puente Hills Mall. It was located on the first floor of the mall, in the center of the plus shape, underneath some massive skylights that really illuminated the newly refreshed carousel. Patrons that were shopping on the upper levels could easily look down to watch the carousel spin in the atrium below. And the carousel does seem to have done well for a period of time. I'm sure the wooden horses appreciated being inside a nice air-conditioned space instead of weathering decades of Wisconsin winters and summers. But unfortunately, the late 90s were a period of struggle for Puente Hills Mall, and they had less than 50% occupancy around this time, which is a terrible sign for a big mall. Things did slowly rebound, but our friend Carousel No. 15 was removed in 1998 after only seven years at the mall. It was too expensive, and it was losing money for the mall operators. Now today, Puente Hills Mall is still operational, but it's struggling again despite a t- 2007 remodel. Where the carousel once stood is now just boring carpet. And where visitors once walked through bustling hallways, today few gather. Several of the larger stores have been closing in the last few years, including Sears and Forever 21. And anecdotal reports online are that more store closures are inevitable. Dead malls are a topic I don't think I've really touched on at all here on the podcast yet, but I do think they're fascinating. And I'd say the concept of dead malls is quite relevant given our present day state. Check out Retail Archaeology, Sal's Expedition Logs, or Dan Bell's Dead Mall series on YouTube for days of interesting content on this subject. So, 1998. The Philadelphia Toboggan Company, Carousel No. 15, was removed from Puente Hills Mall in California. It did not stay idle, however. No, this time the carousel went back on another cross-country trip, back to New York, back to another mall. Now this mall was brand new at the time, though it had been under plan and development for at least 16 years. Palisades Center Mall was built on the old site of two former landmills, surrounding an old cemetery, and it actually faced down opposition from locals who feared noise and crime well before any construction was even begun. When it opened in 1998, it became the second largest shopping mall in the New York metropolitan area and the eighth largest shopping mall in the United States. PTC number 15 was installed in the third-floor food court, a glorious anachronism against modern tubular white architecture and pipes, quote-unquote industrial style. There it spun, tinkling organ bouncing amongst the fast-food restaurants and tables and trash cans, shimmering and brightly colored against the white of its surroundings. Now, Palisades Center Mall is apparently popular on YouTube with elevator enthusiasts of all people— for having high-speed Montgomery Cone traction elevators. Did you know that there is an elevator Wikipedia and an elevator fandom? Of course there is. There are fans for everything. Here is where the carousel was re-added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2001. The carousel lasted for 11 years there in the mall food court, until mall management decided to replace the vintage machine with a modern double-decker masterpiece. In 2009, then, the PTC number no. 15 was last seen operational in public, there in West Nyack, New York. Evicted from Palisades Center Mall, Carousel No. 15 was returned to the Perrins in Oregon. For some time, there were plans for a physical carousel museum. Well, there was a physical carousel museum, at least for a few years, in Hood River, Oregon. It opened in 1999 and featured over 100 carousel animals on display for visitors to learn about and photograph. From an article about the museum, I actually learned something new, that basswood, basewood, basswood, is what both carousel horses and rulers are made out of, because it is a wood that does not buckle, sweat, crack, or change shape. Now, whether one or more horses from Carousel 15 was ever on display at this museum is not clear, but it does seem unlikely given that the carousel returned to Oregon mid-2009 and the museum closed in early 2010 with the intent of relocating. Unfortunately, this relocation never occurred and the Carousel Museum stayed permanently shuttered. This, then, is the last time we hear from the Philadelphia Toboggan Company Carousel Number no. 15. By all accounts, the carousel is in storage, there in Oregon, awaiting a new home. For now, out with a whimper, not with a bang. As recently as 2018, Jerry Zimmerman, the guy from the Wisconsin State Fair, was still hoping to get PTC Number no. 15 back to Wisconsin. A news article from 2018 described it as his white whale. Quote, I have tried for years to find someone to bring that back, and I would like to tie that merry-go-round into a standalone unit on State Fair Park, anchoring a Wisconsin State Fair historical collection. I would need a sponsor for about $1.5 million to bring it back to Milwaukee. End quote. At the height of the American carousel boom, there were said to be thousands of carousels, big and small, almost all of them hand-carved. As the Depression wore on, production slowed, machines were dismantled or lost to fire, and today there are said to be less than 150 of these vintage carousels remaining, with less than 50 of them said to be the same caliber as PTC number 15. At this point, the magnificent carousel is still extant, but in storage somewhere in Oregon, under the care of the Perrin family. It waits. 56 horses, 52 feet in diameter, many firsts. 600 lights, four theme parks, and two malls. One truly historical carousel, that survivor, Philadelphia Toboggan Company's Carousel Number 15. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where I've been your host, Ashley, and today we talked about the life of Philadelphia Toboggan Company's Carousel Number 15. If you've got any questions, corrections, comments, updates, or ideas about any of the topics I've talked about or anything that you want to talk about, please send them to me via my website. The show notes page contains links and photos relevant to this episode. For this episode, the address is theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 31. I'll be back soon with another great episode, so I will see you then. Remember what Lucy Maude Montgomery once said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it.